This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. First up today, a look forward at politics in 2020 with Harold Meyerson. And later in this hour, we'll have highlights of the year that just ended, the year when the Green New Deal was introduced in the House by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and in the Senate by Ed Markey. Bill McKibben will comment. And 2019, of course, was the year the House voted to impeach Donald Trump. Rick Perlstein will explain the parallels and differences with the Nixon impeachment effort. But first, how bad will 2020 be for Donald Trump? Trump Watch starts right now. Politics in 2020. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today, as usual, in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, I think 2020 will be the worst year of Trump's life because he's likely to lose the election and being a loser is the worst thing that you can be in Trump world. But I wonder if you agree that 2020 will be a bad year for Trump and a good year for us. Um, Possibly, although uh, obviously... A bad year for Trump means a good year for us. How good is is uh, you know obviously <laughs> yes uh, not not immediately clear. I mean Trump is still polling at about forty three percent, and it's, it's that's kind of locked in. Uh, so if this if we had a popular vote uh, election that determined who would be president, I would be more optimistic than I am. I still think. Uh, his residual strength in the white working class gives him, uh, you know, some advantages in states like Wisconsin, uh, and given the weird dynamics of the electoral college, that really matters. Uh, the converse of that is that states that are becoming, uh, more racially diverse that have been historically Republican, uh, could flop in the Democrats' direction this year. Arizona certainly. Uh, but also a chance at North Carolina uh, and possibly even Georgia and Texas, though so those are reach states. Uh, I, I think, all things considered, uh, Trump still is probably got to do everything right to win Pennsylvania and Michigan. Uh, but, you know, we shall see. And then, of course, uh, a good deal, though, a good deal depends on who the Democrats Select. Yes, uh, let me let me say yeah. that uh, many of my friends are 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 not optimistic about 2020 because they point out the Democrats right now at least are divided, do not have a candidate, do not have a surefire winner. Uh, how serious a problem is that now and and on November third? Well, it's a problem. How serious, honestly, your friends and I and you don't know. <laughs> yes. uh, but I, I would say uh, the, the, the problem is this, that each of the existing Democratic candidates, and the field was uh, reduced by one today when uh, Julian Castro dropped out. Yes. Uh, but each of the uh, existing candidates is weak in a particular constituency that it would be very nice for the Democrats to have. 
Uh, obviously, uh, white working class is, is probably not uh, the strong point for uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Pete Buttigieg doesn't exactly ring any bells, in fact, quite the contrary, among African Americans. Uh, Bernie Sanders is strong, I would think, in the white working class, but might have some trouble with some of the upscale Republican defectors who voted Democratic in the midterm elections of 2018. Joe Biden uh, obviously would alienate some on the left and, and some young voters. Uh, it's hard to find, in fact, you can find a Democrat among the actually existing candidate field who would be strong across the board. I, I, I think there's a possibility that someone who's not a candidate, that being Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, who somehow has managed to hold and maintain his hold on white working class voters, even as he is basically voted down the line liberal, uh, might be able to bridge that gap. But he can't bridge that gap if he's not in the race. Uh, so um, all of that matters somewhat. That said, uh, it, it could well be that the anti-Trump antipathy is so strong and so widespread that it may not matter a heck of a lot who the Democrats select. And in fact, polls that run the different Democrat, you know, run projections of the different Democratic candidates against Trump, um, they're all pretty much in the same ballpark. Uh, so, it's, uh, again, it's, it's not clear. But I would point out again that, you know, the polls projected in 2016 a slight win for Hillary Clinton, uh, a small margin, about 2%, and in fact, she got that. Yeah. It was just the Electoral College that screwed it up, and so... Hear what goes on in the various states matters a lot. Well, uh, if we look at the the uh, the, the various states, um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, of course, were the the blue wall that crumbled in in 2016. But in each of those states, since Trump took office, his net approval ratings, which started out on the plus side when he was uh, inaugurated in January 2017, his net approval ratings have fallen disastrously. In Pennsylvania, he's down by 17 points, the difference between approve and disapprove. In Wisconsin, he's fallen by 20 points. In Michigan, he's negative by 22 points. And uh, all of those states in the midterm uh, election last year, all elected Democrats. Wisconsin elected a Democratic governor to replace a Republican and re-elected a Democratic senator. Pennsylvania... Re-elected re a Democratic senator, I should add, who is an out-of-the-closet lesbian. Yes. Thank uh, you. So, so the notion of a uh, swing to the right on cultural issues has a little trouble just trying to square itself with that fact. And Michigan, Michigan, which the Democrats just barely lost to Trump, uh, something something like eleven thousand votes. They had the Democrats really had a sweep in twenty eighteen. They elected the governor, the senator, the state attorney general. They flipped two House seats. Voters banned gerrymandering and created automatic voter registration. And all of the statewide Democrats who won victories were female, uh, which, again, uh, calls into question, uh, you know, the cultural biases, presumable, presumable or otherwise, of that state. So it all this makes me think 
that the Democrats are not going to make the mistakes in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin that Hillary made. That's never going to happen again. And as you said, well, the way you put it was Trump is going to have to do everything right. I, it's right. If you look at Michigan in 2018, it's hard to imagine Michigan will go for Trump in November. Of course, he did hold that rally in Battle Creek the day the House voted to impeach him. Uh, he told the, cro- the crowd, quote, you're about to hear the greatest speech you've ever heard, close quote. Uh, uh, this was the subject of Gail Collins' column in the New York Times today. She, he said... Uh, he said when he uh, uh, he had been named Man of the Year in Michigan a decade ago, and can you believe that, he said. And Gail Collins said, actually, no, it's not true, according to factcheck.org. Uh, he was never named Man of the Year by anyone in, in Michigan. So it appears that Donald Trump was lying. Uh, can we do something about that? I, I, I'm stunned. I'm shocked. Uh, uh, lying, lying. Uh, uh, you know, uh, what is the Claude Rain line from Casablanca? Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, what the Republicans say is that the midterm turnout uh, really activated Democrats more than Republicans. A number of, right, Carl Rove just wrote in today's Wall Street Journal that there were a couple hundred thousand uh, white Republicans who didn't go to the polls in 2018, who had in 2016 when Trump was on the ballot. And, uh, you know, so that will uh, change the game. On the other hand, the Democrats are working like crazy uh, to uh, boost voter turnout in those states. They didn't, uh, as a result of Hillary Clinton's uh, sense that these states were already locked up in 2016, they didn't do that in uh, Milwaukee, Detroit and Philadelphia, despite the three largest cities in those three states, in 2016, they didn't really work minority turnout. And so both sides, both sides will be doing that. And I think this is going to be more of a turnout election than a swing vote election. And um, you, I just want to give a tip of the hat here to uh, your friend uh, Stan Greenberg, the legendary Democratic strategist and pollster, who has a, a whole book out about why Trump will lose. We talked to him here about it. With the, it has the wonderful title R.I.P.G.O.P. Just one example of the kind of polling Stan Greenberg has been doing. He asked voters in an election day poll whether they could handle an unexpected expense of $500. And he found that a majority of unmarried women said they could not. Uh, And unmarried women constitute uh, a quarter of the potential electorate if they could be registered and and turned out. Uh, That's the kind of constituency you are talking about when you say if the Democrats focus on turnout, they're they're going to expand their their vote considerably. Yes, and that obviously, uh, in terms of getting the potential base out there, uh, refers to minority communities. But Stan is also... Uh, done some uh, extensive surveying of white working-class women, and he more or less concludes that they are, as it were, the soft underbelly of of the Trump uh, universe, and that uh, his support has eroded among them to the point that, uh, you know, it's not uh, a given that uh, some significant share of those who voted for him in 2016 will vote for him in 2020. 
So it's really two separate uh, uh, kind of uh, sets of data that that Stan has collected on uh, women voters, uh, first unmarried women, which cuts across lines of class and uh, race, and and secondly, uh, the white working class women. Well, in contrast to this this uh, polling showing that a half of unmarried women could not afford and could not pay for an unexpected expense of five hundred dollars, a lot of the pundits tell us the economy is strong, unemployment is low, the stock market is setting a new record every day, and this historically has meant the incumbent will be reelected. Do you think it's different this time? Yes, and I think a lot of pundits uh, to uh, defend a group to which I uh, somehow mistakenly uh, got uh, affiliated. Um, I, I think a lot of pundits say that, you know, Trump trumps the economy, that, mm. that he uh, has become such an issue himself uh, that uh, normal projections of electoral outcomes based on the state of the economy don't fly. That's part of it. The other part of it is... Um, only 52% of the American public have any money at all in the stock market, which is where all the increases in income have come yeah. in, uh, in, the, in the last couple of years, unless you're a minimum wage worker in a state where the minimum wage gets raised every year. Uh, and uh, most, uh, the vast majority of those people just have retirement funds that are insufficient anyway, uh, invested collectively in the market. Uh, you know, I, I, about one in 10 Americans uh, really has sort of significant investments uh, in the market, and those are the ones that have really benefited from the economy. That means nine out of 10 essentially have not. And then there's the the issues. Um, all, the po- all the polls show uh, that on the issues that Americans care most about, they support the Democratic positions and they reject the Trump's uh, themes. Trump focuses on building the wall as his number one issue last time and this time again. But an increasingly an increasing majority of people say, agree with the statement immigration benefits our country. It was fifty percent in twenty sixteen. Today it's sixty five percent. That's a big change away from Trump on the question: Does immigration benefit our country? There is an increasing. Yeah, well, part of the indeed. I mean, part of the whole intensity of Republicans to hold uh, hold the wall against encroachments of uh, general uh, decency and humanity and modernity. Uh, is the sense that they are losing, if not have lost, uh, the battle for public opinion on most issues, which, which kind of, uh, that's partly why uh, they, they're so ferociously, uh, you know, clinging to Trump. Uh, he's he's the, uh, the, you know, the asshole with his finger in the dike to uh, mix metaphors beyond all possible <laughs> unmixing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, there, there's a general sense of embattlement among Republicans. And then this is extended in the Republican base to, you know, people who feel embattled because they're white and they're about to lose, uh, you know, uh, the country is about to become more multiracial. Uh, so a general sense of embattlement, which, which creates a kind of craziness on the right, which we've been subjected to now for several decades, but seems to get a little worse with each passing year. Well, we got about five minutes left here, and I want to switch the focus to uh, 
news on the labor front from California, which you are uh, you are reporting on regularly. Uh, there are some new court challenges from Uber and Postmates, and from the Chambers of Commerce. This is. I would say not good news. Tell us what's going on uh, in in court in California uh, with working class. Yeah, well, what, what what's happened is uh, the legislature and and Governor Gavin Newsom of California uh, enacted a whole series of progressive work relations related uh, laws last year, and they're all set to take they were all set to take effect on January one, and so. Uh, the most, uh, the best known of these was Assembly Bill 5, AB 5, which would have required uh, companies to stop class- misclassifying workers who actually, you know, walk like a duck, talk like a duck, and therefore are ducks, uh, who, who actually are employees, to stop misclassifying them as independent contractors, which is what Uber and Lyft most prominently have done. But many, many big businesses do. So that was supposed to take effect uh, on uh, on January one, and Uber and Postmates went to court and got a temporary stay of that. In in the other uh, case about the Chambers of Commerce, there was another landmark piece of legislation uh, that the legislature passed and Governor Newsom signed into law. Also supposed to take effect on January one, uh, that would have uh, made it illegal for corporations uh, to. Uh, require employees as a condition of employment while they're signing their contract uh, to waive any right to go to court if they have any grievance and, and submit instead to arbitration, uh, what's called generally forced arbitration. Um, and the uh, Chambers of Commerce and, and others uh, filed suit uh, against that uh, taking effect in a temporary restraining order, a temporary stay of that law, was uh, was put into effect as well, and uh, you know the, these the courts, the two respective courts, will then hold hearings on these laws. Yeah, let let me uh, just review what ha- yeah. you say. A temporary stay. How long is temporary, and how do you get out of temporary? Of course, the the corporations want that want it to be permanent, and we'd like it just to be lifted. Well, each court uh, will hold a hearing, and then the judge will deliver a decision as to whether. The law should be stayed, and whether you know, then there'll be a trial as to whether it's legal or constitutional, or uh, or what have you. So, uh, as is often the case in American labor relations for time immemorial, uh, business is relying on the courts to overturn something that the public uh, and, the, and the legislature and the governor, in this case, uh, want, uh, which is to say, worker greater worker rights. Well, we will keep you. We, you will keep us posted on what is I'll happening with independent contractors and with forced arbitration in the courts of California. I'll keep you posted on Postmates, <laughs> which is uh, with Uber, one of the two companies that sued on the uh, uh, independent contractor business. The the underlying fact. Finishing up with the politics here, the the concluding point that I have is that the. The Democratic base, just want to underline this, is considerably larger than the Republican base and getting bigger since Trump became president. Uh, a, a recent poll asked if regis- asked registered voters if they had already decided how they were going to vote uh, in November. 
Almost half of registered voters, 48%, say they are certain they will vote against Trump. In the case, it, it doesn't matter who the opponent is. You have already talked about this a little bit. Any opponent is going to be better than Trump for almost half of the electorate. Uh, tr- how big is Trump's base? Almost a third, 34%, said they are certain they will vote for him, no matter who the opponent is. Now, I mean, if you could decide whether to have half of the voters as your starting point or a third of the voters, I think it's pretty clear uh, where you would start. Um, of course, uh, it was sort of, there, there was a divide along those same lines, but not as great when Hillary was running. And everyone reminds us that not only do the Democrats have to turn out their people, but there are restrictions on voting uh, by Democrats, vote suppression by Republicans. There are the bots and uh, the dirty tricks. Uh, Maybe Tulsi Gabbard will run as a third-party candidate and draw left-wing votes in a few key states and give the election. And and there is our primordial gerrymander, which is to say the Electoral College, uh, which means the popular vote matters, but not entirely. The popular vote matters, but not entirely. Uh, Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. It's always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, highlights of 2019, starting with the Green New Deal. Bill McKibben will comment. That's in a minute on KPFK. When Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, where we stand on impeachment and how we got here, Rick Perlstein will explain. But first... What can we do to reduce the speed of climate change? Bill McKibben was one of the first people to warn of the dangers of global warming 30 years ago with his book, The End of Nature. After that, he founded the environmental organization 350.org, and then he wrote 15 books and hundreds of articles and essays, many of them for The New Yorker, some for The Nation. He's also been teaching at Middlebury College in Vermont, and now he has a new book out. It's called Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? We reached him today in Washington, D.C. Bill McKibben, welcome back. Well, it's good to be with you as always. And not only am I in Washington, D.C., but in keeping with the spirit of the week, (laughs) the publisher has me staying at the Watergate Hotel. So I I feel as if I'm completely in tune with the times and everything you're talking about. (laughs) That's a wonderful wonderful thing. Um, Your your book, your, your new book, Falter, doesn't open with the big picture of global warming. It doesn't open with rising sea levels and species extinction and impending disaster. Instead, you start with roofing materials. Consider (laughs) the asphalt shingle, you say. 
Wow. So uh, what do we learn if we start by considering the asphalt shingle? Well, you know, the point that I was trying to make in those first few pages is what a complicated, diverse, complex, and in many ways remarkable game it is that humans have figured out how to play, that all the things we're doing are uh, 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 quite remarkable um, and quite vulnerable to disruption. Uh, You know, you could write about the things that really matter about sex and art and cooking and Instagram and uh, love and things, but, uh, you know, at least until I got warmed up, I felt like roofs were a good place to start because they're the most mundane thing in the world, but they illustrate dramatically the million different steps and uh, uh, you know, uh, that you have to go through to do something even as, as mundane as put a roof on your house. And I, I think we underappreciate the vulnerability of the world that we have built. Um, I started sensing this 30, 30 years ago this year that I wrote The End of Nature, which was the first book about climate change. And at the time, it was almost impossible to get anyone to focus on the fact that the world's physical stability should not be taken for granted. Thirty years have passed, and that's, I'm afraid, now abundantly clear as we endure record storms, record floods, record fire, forest fires, record everything. Part of this book is about that, and part of it is about the new technologies that are now on the horizon that seem to me to level some pretty serious threats, too. The two that I really focus on uh, in the third part of the book are... Uh, human genetic engineering and very advanced forms of artificial intelligence, both which I think have a have some chance of uh, leeching the meaning out of or or ending this uh, graceful uh, uh, dance that we call human civilization. Well, I want to stick with the asphalt shingle for one minute more because mm. the asphalt in the asphalt shingle has to come from someplace, and the asphalt could be coming from the Alberta tar sands. Have you been to the Alberta tar sands? What's what's it like up I there? I have. It's the single ugliest scar probably on the face of the whole earth. There's admittedly many places that vie for that, but I don't know if any place has quite managed it on the scale of the tar sands. No place that I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot. You can see it without traveling there. Go look on Google Earth uh, in the area around Fort McMurray in the northern part of Alberta. And it just a desolation that stretches literally forever. Um, you know, um, not only is it foreboding looking, sort of Mordor-like, huge pool, the biggest dams on Earth hold back the tailing ponds from the tar sands mining, not only does it look horrible, it sounds horrible the whole time you're there because if a bird ever landed on those tailing ponds, it would die. There are cannons firing around the clock to try and scare them away wow. uh, every few seconds. So it, you have the very strong sense that you're in a war zone and that nature is losing the war decisively. Your new book, Falter, of course, says things are looking pretty bad for humans right now. But of course, there's an opposing school of thought, which you can find in a dozen books and a hundred 
TED Talks that things are getting better. The whole world is getting better. There's less infant mortality today. People are living longer. More people are literate than have ever been literate before in the history of the world. Of the 55 million people who died around the world in 2012, only 120,000 of them died in wars. This, of course, is the kind of view we associate with the Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker. He says... uh, You know, people should be happy about everything that's happened that's so good. He says people like uh, you and I guess me just seem to, quote, bitch, moan, whine, carp, and kvetch. Steven Pinker is optimistic about our future, he says, because, and I'm going to quote now, so far, humanity has made a lot of progress solving what seemed like intractable problems, close quote. What do you say to Steven Pinker? It's not that he's completely wrong. We actually have made enormous progress on certain things over the last 30 or 40 years. And that makes it all the more tragic that we're now seeing that that progress begin to disappear in the wake of very rapid physical deterioration. I mean, in fact, um, after several years, several, maybe more than a decade of steady decline, the number of hungry people on earth went up last year because of climate change and associated natural catastrophes. After a decade of fairly steady decline, the uh, incidence of child labor went up again last year because of climate change and other shocks like it that uh, inevitably end up with uh, impoverished families putting kids to work. And this, of course, if we keep on current trends, is only going to get worse, much worse. Uh, You know, so far, look what happened when, say, two million migrants left Syria as a result of the civil war there, a civil war that, by the way, was triggered at least in part by the least worst drought in the history of what we once called the Fertile Crescent. Two million migrants leaving was enough to discombobulate the politics of of Western Europe, just as uh, a smaller number of migrants leaving the drought-stricken highlands of Honduras and Guatemala have been enough to help discombobulate the politics of our country. Now, figure that the uh, UN's low prediction for climate migrants by mid-century is 200 million, and their high prediction is a billion. So ask yourself how much development, how much progress, how much anything we're going to be getting in a world like that. So we've said that uh, you wrote the first book on pretty much the same topic 30 years ago. That was the end of mm-hmm. nature. I guess yes. this book could have been called I Told You So, but uh, <laughs> you decided not to take that course. So it, it is striking that for 30 years we knew that climate change was coming, and a lot of people will tell you we did nothing. I'd like to look a little more closely at the we in that sentence. There's, there's you and me, and then there's the people who ran Exxon. Yeah, uh, look, uh, if if you'd asked me 30 years ago, uh, one of the things I would not have expected was how slow we would be to react as civilizations. And for a while, that really perplexed me. It's come much clearer into focus in recent years. You know, as you know, great investigative reporting at places like the L.A. Times and the Pulitzer Prize-winning website Inside Climate News and Columbia Journalism School revealed over the last few years that the fossil fuel industry knew everything there was to know about climate change and knew it back in the 1980s, and that 
they believed what their scientists were telling them. I mean, Exxon started building all its drilling rigs to compensate for the rise in sea level it knew was coming. But of course, the thing they didn't do was tell any of the rest of us. Just the opposite. Uh, they spent billions of dollars building the architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that has spread with relentless efficiency the lie that science was unsure about climate change. And you can measure the result of that lie by the fact that the man in the White House right now believes that climate change is a hoax manufactured by the Chinese. Mm. Uh, a view so delusional that, you know, if someone started muttering it to you on a seated on a public bus, you'd get up and change seats, yes, you know? You um, so that's where we are. I mean, that's how we've managed to wait. We've had a 30-year completely phony debate about whether global warming was real, a debate that both sides knew the answer to when it began. It's just one of them was content to lie about it in an effort to preserve its business model. Well, let's talk about what is to be done now to slow the pace of climate change. I know that uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, starting April 22nd, Harvard Heat Week is coming up. The goal of Harvard Heat Week is to put the heat on Harvard to divest from fossil fuels. Let's talk about Harvard uh, Heat Week and uh, the divestment movement. Right. Well, let's talk about the large climate landscape of which that's a one part. We're in a climate moment now. There's no question, and you can see it coming from all directions, whether it's the Extinction Rebellion that uh, brought traffic to a crawl in London uh, in recent days, whether it's the millions of school kids who are walking out of school following the lead of Greta Thunberg in Sweden, whether it's the young people pushing the Green New Deal here in this country with increasing success, uh, whether it's the divestment movement now sort of cresting, uh, we've reached the point where $8 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios uh, have divested in part or in whole from coal and oil and gas, and and to the point where it's really putting the hurt on the industry. There was a big story in Politico a couple of weeks ago about the heads of all the coal companies saying they could no longer raise capital. Uh, they just were not investment funds that were willing to give them money because they divested. And that's, you know, one more powerful part of this. It would be, of course, good if Harvard joined in, belated though they would be at this point. Um, but it'll be good to be just raising the issue with the uh, rich, powerful, and out-of-touch people who run that institution. Well, there are some people who... who wish that Exxon could change, who who think the logic uh, of, of making money is that there's plenty of money to be made in alternative energy, and they wonder why don't the big oil and gas corporations decide that they should take the lead in alternative energy. Does Exxon have to hate solar panels? Well, the answer to that one is actually really interesting, I think. Yes, there's money to be made in the next energy future. People are going to get rich putting up solar panels. But there's not Exxon-scale money to be made. And if you think about it for a minute, you'll realize why. Once you get the solar panels up on the roof, 
the energy comes for free when the sun rises every morning. Good point. From Exxon's point of view, that's the stupidest business model you could imagine. <laughs> They've spent 100 years charging people more every month for what they get. So they've tried everything they can to beat back the rise of renewable energy, they and the utilities. Eventually, they're going to lose. The price of wind and sun just keeps dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. It's now the cheapest way to generate an electron in the world. And that's eroding the fossil fuel companies' power slowly. The trouble is slowly, because we need it now to go quickly. Uh, 50 years from now, we're going to run the world on sun and wind. The question is, is it going to be a completely broken world that we're running on sun and wind, or will we have made the transition in time to avert the absolute worst possible outcomes? We're already going to be in some trouble. There's no stopping global warming. That's not one of the options on the menu, but there may be still some opportunity to slow it down. So let's talk, in, for as our last topic here, about how to find the right balance between uh, fear and hope. I know from everything you've said, everything you've written, you are not optimistic about the human game, but you do have reasons for hope. Uh, how do you balance these? Well, I think that that you've got to get up and fight every morning. And I think the fact that there is this movement building is a very, very good sign. It's what I and others have worked hard for many years to build, and now we see it starting to come true. Um, and it's, you know, very good to see. I worry that we waited too long to get started sometimes and uh, that the momentum of climate change is very, very grave indeed. Um, but at least we're starting to engage the question now. And what option does one have but to hope and to work hard uh, until the scientists tell us that there's no point in it anymore? And uh, we're not at that point yet. Uh, the best science indicates we have a window, albeit a fairly narrow one that's clearly closing rapidly, to still make some fundamental change. The IPCC, in its report last September, gave us a 12, now 11-year timeline to have made fundamental transformations. That's why we've got no more presidential elections to waste and no more congressional cycles to waste and no more anything to waste. From now on in, we better be making the right decisions in sharp time. And, you know, some places are beginning to. New York City just in the last days passed the Green Deal for New York, a really ambitious piece of climate legislation in the world's financial capital. That's a good sign about where the smart money is starting to point. Let's hope we can make it happen fast enough. And we do have models of how to how to bring big changes when the obstacles seem tremendous in the nonviolent protest movements of the 20th century. That's right. That's the other great technology along with solar panels. And so we are, you know, we're very, that's the greatest tool that we have. Our job is to change the zeitgeist. And the job of the fossil fuel industry is to keep everybody thinking that burning rocks from underground is the normal and obvious way to proceed. And our job is to make it so that people think it's not the obvious way to proceed, that there is a, a clear better alternative and that we can seize it and seize it fast. You've got to get up and fight every morning 
to change the zeitgeist. We're capable of acting together to do remarkable things. That's what Bill McKibben says in his new book, Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? It's a terrific book. Bill, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us. Back at you, brother. We'll look forward to the next time. Take care. We spoke with Bill McKibben on this show in April. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, impeachment. Trump's and Nixon's. Rick Perlstein will compare and contrast. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali. But first, now it's time to talk about impeachment. For comment and some historical analysis, we turn to Rick Perlstein. He's the award-winning author, most recently, of The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. And he wrote the classic book, Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. It was a New York Times bestseller and was picked as one of the best nonfiction books of the year by over a dozen publications. Rick's former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice and a former online columnist for The New Republic and Rolling Stone, His journalism and essays have appeared all over the place, Newsweek, The New York Times, and The Nation. We reached him today at home in Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. I want to talk about public opinion then and now. At the start of the Trump impeachment hearings in the House last week, opinion polls showed 52% support for holding the hearings, 45% opposed, And even more surprising, support for removing Trump from office right now is 47% in favor, 45% opposed. I wonder at the beginning of impeachment hearings on Nixon, were there 47% in favor of removing him from office? Well, you have to remember that the thing developed quite gradually and quite slowly. So we're talking about impeachment. The impeachment process in the House Judiciary Committee was something that you know began and started working its way through the system in spring of summer 1974. So before that, in the summer of 1973, there were there were hearings on Watergate in the Senate that were led by Sam Irvin that began in May of 1973. And what really kind of broke the back of his popularity and got people started talking about impeachment was this thing called, you know, the Saturday Night Massacre, which happened in October of 1973, when there was a special prosecutor who demanded he produce the tapes, the evidence that he committed crimes, and he responded by firing the special prosecutor. And that's when, you know, seeing people showing up in the front of the White House wearing Uncle Sam suits and saying, you know, honk for impeachment and all that. So it was a very slow process, although I always like to point people out to the fact that, you know, we had our Saturday Night Massacre, which was the Comey firing, you know, two and a half years ago. So in a lot of ways it's slower, right? But um, in this highly partisan 
atmosphere. I think people were willing to give the president a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt. Don't forget the only poll that matters in 1972, he won 49 states and and something like 60 percent of the vote in the election. And my favorite poll result was a week before that. 60% of the public said that they trusted him more than they trusted George McGovern, who only got 29% in that poll. So he was a really, he was really good at his (laughs) cover-up. He wasn't like, you know, Donald Trump, who, you know, kind of spouted admissions to crimes, you know, on the public record. Very different cats, very different processes. The thing that I'm repeating over and over again is that really Watergate fundamentally was about Richard Nixon trying to hide evidence because he knew that if the evidence came out, the world would know he was guilty and he had enough shame to realize that he would have to leave office. On the other hand, Donald Trump seems perfectly willing to, you know, do things like release the transcript and, you know, admit that he's guilty in in public. And that's even more frightening because he knows that no matter how obvious his guilt is, he's always going to have a solid wall of people in the Republican Party willing to defend him. And he's not going to have to leave office at all because he has no shame. And he said that at the very beginning of the 2016 election campaign, that famous quote in the Iowa primary campaign where he said he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and not lose any voters talking about the loyalty of his base. Chosen to stage a natural experiment as to find out whether this is the case. He's clearly a very dedicated uh, social scientist. (laughs) Well, of course, Watergate is very much on the minds of everybody involved here. Nancy Pelosi said last week that Trump's pressure on Ukraine to uh, come up with dirt on Joe Biden quote, makes what Nixon did look almost small, close quote. She said what Trump did was, quote, much worse than what Nixon did in covering up the burglary at the Democratic National Committee. I wonder if you agree with Nancy Pelosi on that. Well, if, she's, if, if she was so hot to try it against Trump, I want to know why she didn't get started on this thing a heck of a long time ago. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they're both terrible and they're both unconstitutional and they're both profound threats to the constitutional order. I like to point out that if you really want a good parallel, if you want a secret foreign policy, we're out of the basement of the White House against American policy. Look at Iran-Contra, which everyone seems to have forgotten about, maybe because the Democrats really didn't have the stomach to fight that one to the end. Well, remind us why the Iran-Contra affair in the late days of the Reagan administration seems like a, a revealing parallel and what conclusions you draw from it. What happened in Iran-Contra was this unbelievably surreal scheme in which, you know, Ronald Reagan and, you know, the conservatives around him were desperate to funnel money to the anti-communist opposition, the Contras in Nicaragua, whom Reagan uh, announced with a moral equivalent equivalent of the founding fathers, even though they were, you know, murderous thugs. And there was very low public support for that. And Ronald Reagan, if you recall, kept on going on TV and giving giving these hair on fire speeches talking about how it's only this many miles away from San Antonio that that's being taken over by, you know, the communist conspiracy and no one in the public cared. So the people around him just decided they were going to do this on his own, you know, really pretty much with, with, with Reagan's knowing approval. And they chose a very strange way to do it. Americans kept on being 
seized as hostages by the allies of Iran in, in the Lebanese war that Reagan had chosen to get them involved in the middle of. This is rather far from Nicaragua, I believe. Rather. And, uh, but, they, but they needed cash and they wanted to get these guys out. So these kind of scumbag arms dealers would come to, to Washington and say, we, can, we have ties to moderates in the Iranian regime. And if you show good faith by selling us missiles in our war against Iraq, then we'll send the word and they'll release American hostages. And they would do it. You know, Reagan sent missiles to our enemy, Iran, and lo and behold, the hostages were not released anyway. <laughs> So that was kind of one of the many scandalous things about this policy, even though it was supposedly stated American policy that we don't you know, negotiate with hostages. And they would sell the missiles that cost $18 million for $50 million. <laughs> so there was that hustle, too. And they would take the extra money and they would send it to the Contras. And, and by the way, Oliver North would take some of it and buy snow tires and you know, buy, buy a Bodro alarm for his house. So there was all kinds of grifting going on on the side. Surprise, surprise. But to make a long story short, you know, they created this kind of private foreign policy with their own funding sources, even after Congress had specifically passed laws outlawing sending military assistance to Contras. And yet this did not end up with impeachment hearings against Reagan. Why not? Very, very much so. I think that the kind of mandarins who run Washington and the bipartisan foreign policy elite and the Democrats really didn't have the stomach to take this thing to the end because, you know, we had only chased the president out of office 13 years before that. Lyndon Johnson had kind of left office in basically a state of shame after the Vietnam War. He chose not to run for re-election. And I think people said enough is enough. And there really was this kind of too big to fail attitude that if we keep on taking on presidencies, then the kind of smooth functioning of the American system can't work. And the Republican Party received a very different signal, which was that basically it was open season. They had a uh, blank check. And, you know, the next Republican president is George H.W. Bush, and he pardons the Iran-Contra felons. We're hearing a lot of talk about pardons now from Donald Trump. And then, of course, the next president, uh, Republican president after that, George W. Bush, does all kinds of chicanery around spying on American citizens. And Barack Obama says after that that, you know, it's really behooves us to look forward and not backward. And then we have financial crisis, and there's no accountability for that. Again, too big to fail. And now we have a president who's really dictatorially minded, who seems determined to take this thing to its uttermost. Ed Cox, Nixon's uh, son-in-law, was on Fox News recently, told Fox News that Trump told him that Nixon should have, quote, fought all the way through the impeachment trial in the Senate instead of resigning what do you think about that? Uh, well, you know, if that had happened, he would have received a pretty profound humiliation because I think when the Republican leadership went to him, what they told him was that he, he only had something like 15 votes in the Senate. You know, that's the Roy Cohn method. You just basically deny, 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 and you don't accept any evidence against you. He also said that the um, Watergate impeachment was a complete partisan affair, which is completely true if you ignore all the Republicans who supported it. (laughs) Great. You know, you're famous, legendary for your mastery of all of the littlest uh, revealing facts about uh, this history. Let's talk about Earl Landgreeb. (laughs) You know, Earl Landgreeb, 
was a guy who was so out there in the context of 1974 that his very name became kind of a synonym for a long time afterwards for kind of lunatic, crazy, out there, wackadoodle extremism. But I think today he probably would be very high in the leadership of the Republican Party, don't you think? Earl Langrebe was uh, an Indiana congressman best known to that point for a scheme to smuggle Bibles into the Soviet Union secretly to, you know, basically persuade the good, dirty Russian proletariat that Christianity was the answer to all their woes. But basically he went on the Today Show the morning before Nixon's resignation and said that he would be supporting his president, even if you had to drag him out of there and shoot him. The NBC reporter said, uh, but what about the smoking gun evidence we have on tape that Richard Nixon had been, you know, lying for, you know, two and a half years. And Earl Langry famously said, don't confuse me with the facts. That's the Jim Jordan technique, just kind of to, to shout, don't confuse me with the facts and, you know, make up your own. I remember complaining about the Watergate investigation and the articles of impeachment that the House eventually voted that Nixon's real crimes, as we call them, were not his cover-up of the break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. His real crimes, we said, were against the people of Vietnam, his cover-up of the way he sabotaged the peace talks, his illegal bombings of Cambodia, his overthrow of democracy in Chile. There are similar complaints today about the Democrats' current focus on Trump's dealing with Ukraine when there are so many other terrible things he's done. What do you think about this parallel? I would say two things. The first is that when the House began working on articles of impeachment, they did include an article for his secret bombing of Cambodia for which he, you know, created these double ledgers, like a mafia don who would have like one ledger about, you know, his payoffs and one for the legitimate front business. But that's an important comparison to today because what happened in the House Judiciary Committee was that basically an equal number of Republicans and Democrats on the committee organized themselves into what they called a fragile coalition and said, if we're going to impeach a president, we have to do so on articles that both parties agree on. So it really proves the extent to which this was this bipartisan process that you had these kind of public minded Republicans who are perfectly willing to uh, abandon their president if their consciences directed them to. So that's one thing. But the other part of it is, yeah, I really do think that this is problematic. This, this idea that Pelosi and Schiff have that if you kind of bundle this into this tidy little package that the public can understand and turn the investigation only into this small, what some people would consider a venial sin compared to a lot of the other things Trump did, the public will understand it better and they can better uh, persuade public opinion. I have a very different interpretation of this, which is that when Trump is acquitted, which he will be by this majority Senate, run by this authoritarian political party, the Republicans, he'll just say, basically, what are you going to do? Impeach me again, right? And he's going to see it as a blank check to do even worse things. So I think that you have to kind of go for broke. You're going to shoot the king. You can't miss. It's too late now. I think they've kind of, the die is cast, but they should have made this as kind of overwhelmingly complete reckoning with the entire anti-constitutional conception that Trump came to the presidency with and pull everything together. You know, when they started, when Archibald Cox started his independent prosecutor's investigation 
they had seven different task forces about different aspects wow. of crimes in the Nixon administration. And this stuff included taking bribes for the milk industry so the milk the milk industry could get price supports. It included, you know, an international conglomerate, international telephone and telegraph bribing the Republican Party in order to um, uh, get favorable consideration on a merger that they wanted to do. You know, it was, wasn't just Watergate and the associated cover-up. And, and that, was, that was also uh, a distinguishing feature of the Irving Committee hearings was that basically they covered everything. You know, it's like they would turn over one rock and they'd find some other awful crime. So pretty soon they're talking about, you know, what you will call the Houston memo, a, a memo in 1970 when the staffers that recommended breaking in to uh, opponents' offices and Nixon approved the memo and it was kind of unapproved a couple of weeks later. You know, they got uh, into things like um, the way Nixon uses public money to uh, improve his private residences. You know, they got into things like uh, a $100,000 donation he took from a financier who was a fugitive who wanted to come back to the United States. And pretty soon this narrative was established. It wasn't a complex narrative because it was so big that what the public came away with was that the Nixon administration was corrupt from, from stem to stern. And I think that was the reason why by the time they had this smoking gun evidence, people were willing to take this extraordinary and frightening step of abandoning the president, you know, of saying that we cannot move forward as a country, as a democratic Republic with this guy in the Oval Office. Rick Perlstein. His books include The Invisible Bridge on the Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. Frank Rich called it a Rosetta Stone for Reading America and Its Politics Today, an epic work. Thank you, Rick. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Take care. We spoke with Rick Perlstein in mid-November after the first week of impeachment hearings. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Harold Meyerson had our preview of politics in 2020. We spoke with Bill McKibben about the Green New Deal. Thanks to our engineer today, Kiana Williams, and to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.